0: to another episode of Raven Conversations, the show where we bring you the news and information from the Washington National Guard and the Washington Military Department. I'm Jason Kreiss. As you all probably know by now, the U.S. has fully exited Afghanistan, and during the withdrawal, the U.S. military began an operation to help safely airlift vulnerable Afghans from the Hamad Karzai International Airport in Kabul. Included are those who have worked alongside the U.S. forces in Afghanistan for the past 20 years. This was called Operation Allies Refuge. As the operation continued and Afghans began arriving at bases in the U.S., the operation was shifted to a civilian-run continuation called Operation Allies Welcome. This operation, led by the Department of Homeland Security, had the task of managing the resettlement of the refugees by providing temporary housing, medical screenings, language lessons, and other general support as they transition to life in America. On this episode, I sat down with three Washington National Guard airmen who raised their hands to volunteer for this massive effort. They traveled to Joint Base McGuire-Dix Lakehurst in New Jersey, where they were a part of more than 200 airmen, working 24-hour operations helping more than 9,500 Afghan refugees resettle and transition to their new lives. They worked long, tireless days, assisting with tasks like acquiring and distributing everyday household items, hygiene products, clothing, baby products. They helped quarantine refugees who have been exposed to infectious diseases, not just COVID-19, but measles and chickenpox, among others. But probably the most important responsibility they had was the connections they made along the way. These airmen were some of the first Americans these Afghan refugees saw. The impression that they made on the children and families that were going through a very traumatizing experience will undoubtedly last a lifetime. So sit back, enjoy my conversation with the three airmen who volunteered for Operation Allies Welcome. Yeah, <laughs> tense. Um all right, well thanks for guys for uh for joining me today. Um I have with me Master Sergeant John Hudgel who is um from the headquarters, right? Uh Air yes, Guard. sir. Yeah. Uh Master Sergeant Sa. Yes. I'm just going to go with Sa for right <laughs> now because you asked me to, <laughs> but you can introduce yourself later. <laughs> and then uh Staff Sergeant Jennifer Glessing who is also from the 2
1: Two six two.
0: Two six two. Yes. Okay, we can go into that whenever when it's your turn to talk. So sure. I'll just kick it over to you guys. One two three, and then we'll just introduce yourself and tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, um,
2: uh, Master Sergeant John Hudgel. I've been uh, with headquarters almost two years, um, twenty-two years total military time. But started off active duty Army, had a big break in service, and came back and found the Air Guard in two thousand five, and uh, been working in public affairs. Most of my career before that, it was still photography and darkroom stuff. And had it, during my break in service, I had a commercial business that I operated for oh, a number cool. of years. So, um, yeah, coming back in the Guard has been um, kind of a, a second career, might say.
0: Nice. Cool.
3: Awesome. Hello, everyone. Uh, Master Hello. Sergeant Fomwena. I'm also part of headquarters for Washington Air National Guard. Um, I've been with headquarters for about a year. Uh, Before that, I was on a couple of stat tours, but I'm originally a Washington State native, so I'm from here. And um, so, like I said, I've been headquarters for about a year. been Air National Guard for, I just hit year 11, so it goes by fast. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it sure does. That's where I'm at.
1: And I'm Staff Sergeant Jennifer Glessing. I work at the 262 Cyberspace Operations Squadron at McCord. So I'm not from headquarters. But uh, I've been in the Air Guard for 10 years and have been at the 262 the entire time. And I'm currently working on about year four as a full-time staff member. And my role there is basically the help desk administrator. So they call me when they have computer problems. Okay.
0: Cool. Even, this, even the, the, the cyber has computer problems.
1: Even the cyber <laughs> people have computer problems sometimes. I, I do a lot of account setup and um, administrative Maintenance of systems and servers, oh, okay. so they have things that they need admin powers for, and I have to do that.
0: Nice. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me. Um, the reason why we brought you guys in today is because you guys recently came back from a really, really, really unique and important mission, and it was Operation Allies Welcome, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is the transition, helping to transition Afghan evacuees from Afghanistan to transition to American life and you guys were there you guys helped them out in many many mm-hmm. different ways um and yeah so we're just going to have a conversation about that um what your guys' experiences were what you saw things that stood out to you and it's okay if you guys talk about like things that didn't go well you know it's I mean it's a it's something that was being stood up Thousands and thousands of people, you know, it's it something's bound to go wrong. So it's okay if you if, if you yeah. talk about some of that. So you guys went to Joint Base McGuire-Dix Lakehurst, right? Yes. Jbmdl, and that's in uh, New Jersey, mm-hmm.
2: Garden um, State.
0: Yeah. Um, so how many evacuees were at your location? Because there, th- these these people were evacuated. I mean, there's like how many in total? There's probably I
2: think the tens of official number that the State Department is giving is 124,000. Yeah. Now, not all of those are coming to the United States. Right. right. And I think they said we're going to process 50 to 60,000 in the United States. So other countries. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So about 50 to 60 were here in the in the U.S. and. Uh, they're scattered around at different different correct. bases. So mm-hmm. there's like McCoy in Wisconsin. I think had some Texas. had some Holloman. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. New Mexico. It's
2: Five thousand at Camp Atterbury in, mm-hmm. in, in Indiana. Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: Anyway, so you guys were at we we're, were at the
2: large one. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of reasons I think why it was picked. Um, and when I know and I signed up, they were saying we were either going to go there or Bulk Field in Wisconsin. So they or then they came back, maybe Holloman, they were trying to just get numbers Mm -hmm. because they were a call for about what, five, Mm -hmm. five to six hundred that they were looking for, specifically uh, female members too to work with Afghan women. So that's what's great about our conversation today is uh, our two female members spent had some of those experiences working directly, more directly with Afghan women.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when you guys arrived like what was it like what was anybody can start and <laughs> oh
1: it was it hadn't been quite set up yet so we were there from the beginning I think as far as I know we were there on day three which was exceptionally early there were mm-hmm. they were still clearing out the buildings for people to move into they were still building the tents for people to move into and so watching that process I've never been involved in anything like that and so it was really incredible to see what we started out with and then when we were leaving to see what we stood up and how how much different mm. it had been. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah, we basically when we got there it was literally you're figuring it as you're figuring it out as you were going. So one minute you'll be doing this and then you're like nope, stand by, we got to wait for something else or mm. nope, the process has changed. <laughs> so literally day by day, hour by hour it was changing by the second. So
0: as is typical with a lot of military yeah. operations, <laughs> when things are are brand new and just being stood up, yeah, yeah absolutely. So yeah. it sounds like you guys got about ninety five hundred uh, evacuees that were at your location.
3: Yeah, each village had a different amount, but like yeah. I was in village two, so I had close to about three thousand um, guests that we were servicing. Mm-hmm. So for village two, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah. So what was the layout like? What, what you, you're talking about the base, like mm-hmm. or, or the the villages. What can you tell me about the villages?
2: So, what was interesting is being, you know, old school army. Uh, Fort Dix at one time was a huge uh, base for basic training, and it's transitioned to more uh, readiness for the contingency operations that, you know, we just concluded. So, they were doing a lot of uh, 30 and 40 day classes of getting people combat arms ready, but that's what they were using those old buildings for. Uh, now they became dorms and homes for the afghans moving in mm-hmm. uh, they were ready to go and but they they still they're you know you're talking about in some rooms putting 60 people into one of these big open bays wow. where mm-hmm. it might have only had beds for 40 and you're going to put 20 more cots in there just because you're doing you're trying to get as many people in as fast as you can. I think the number I'm not sure if you guys remember, but I think they said something around seven or eight hundred total right. guests were there when we first got there, and by mm-hmm. the time we left we were right at that ten thousand mark, right. expecting mm-hmm. another five thousand. So it's going to be one of the largest, if not the largest, evacuation uh, sites in the United States. Yeah. So yeah.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the base is a huge base. Mm-hmm. So you could be driving on one, you know, one side of the base and have no idea that there's villages over on the other side. Cause we're on, you know, towards the, we're on the army side.
2: Yeah, the the old traditional. So you'd just be driving,
3: Vitzer. and then you see like the old barracks, and then mm-hmm. you kind of peek over, and you see a lot of the guests just outside playing soccer, walking around, and that's kind of what like village one and two was set up like, like just the mm-hmm. the buildings and kind of you know barricaded off and that was like the village was those old dorms mm-hmm.
0: yeah so what kind of uh, services did uh, were you guys providing these evacuees
3: well initially
1: we started out uh, i i started out on a standby team so we were just call as we needed people uh the the processing center would call and say we've cleared another building we need 30 cots set up can you send two people and we'd go over there and we'd go over with a force of four or six people and get it done six times faster than they planned on us doing it. And then they're like, okay, now what do we do with you? (laughs) Go stand by for another assignment. And we'd go do something else a couple hours later. um, There was a point in time, I think it was about a week where we would go over and we would actually get on the buses and ride with the guests coming Mm -hmm. from the airport and escort them onto the base. So we were riding in a bus with 50 to 60 people to bring them onto the base. So that was that was an experience to mm-hmm. see, like, literally bringing them in.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's that's how early we were there.
2: Because they were coming from Philadelphia, so they had about a 45-minute trip. Right. And so we would – and we were taking different routes to get in just for traffic. And then we had to coordinate with uh, dispatch to make sure that we got a gate. We had a designated gate that we were using there because they had several gates. So we had a good traffic flow of, of that, and we would – Call in our times, our call out times, how 20 minutes out, 15 minutes out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Um, but that was to me the most jarring part of it, probably when we did that, because the people who were arriving had made that evacuation out of Afghanistan and they had processed to probably mostly Germany at Ramstein where they were held, and then they were again. Air, airlifted from tra- from Germany to the United States. Now, if they were flying in C-17s, it was a straight shot. But if they mm-hmm. needed, if they flew on a 130, they had to get fuel at Mendenhall. So it was another stop and more traveling. And the people were exhausted. I mm-hmm. mean, just that, Absolutely. like yeah, I remember. have never seen exhausted, right. uh, where they were carrying little kids to the bus and they were just asleep, you know, just completely asleep in the middle of the day. And they were just really worn out. And that, and just pers- when you see person after person, it's not like just one family. Yeah. It was like
3: right. busloads yeah.
2: that were just exhausted. But there was also a sense of they knew that this is like one more trip and then they were going to be able to get some food and, mm-hmm. and uh, a place to sleep.
1: Get yeah. settled in. Yeah. There was Absolutely. one point we, we had a bus with 63 guests on it. And the bus experienced some problems and had to had to stall on the side of the road. And I was on the bus, and I was kind of panicked. I'm like, these people don't necessarily speak English very well. How am I going to explain to them what's going on? They had to get another bus to come out behind us. And they were so calm and so quiet. Nobody tapped me on the shoulder and asked what was going on. Nobody complained. Nobody said anything. And we, it was the last bus that I had run, and... Um, It was the first time that one of the volunteers from uh, the pickup location had just randomly brought a box of juice boxes and water bottles and said, here, in case somebody gets thirsty. And I I was like, well, that was really nice of her to think about something like that. And so when the bus broke down on the shoulder of the freeway, I just went straight to like – I I joked about calling it flight attendant mode, and I just picked up the box, and I was like, okay, we've got some things in case you're thirsty. We're going to have another bus come pick us up. And – we had two people from the escort on each bus, so uh, the master sergeant that was with me stepped out, and he was coordinating the other bus arriving and uh, making sure that we had figured out logistically how are we going to move these people on the side of the freeway and keep them safe, and they had a team of people show up to kit to all of the luggage out of the bottom of the bus and move it to the other bus, and then those people stood as like a wall to make sure none of the kids... Ran off to, you know, in front of the cars or anything like that. But uh, at one point, I just, I said, Does anybody here speak English? Can you help me out with translating? And they stood up and uh, translated everything, said, Hey, you know, we've got this problem, we're gonna move. And it went so incredibly smoothly. And later, somebody was like, Were you nervous? Were you scared? Were you afraid that somebody was going to be mad? I said, Nobody was mad. Everybody Mm -hmm. was just calm. They acted like it was going normally. To have this bus just thudding along on the side of the freeway, and I'm like, "How come nobody's, how come nobody's <laughs> acting like concerned <laughs> except for me?" And uh, so that, it's a that was really difference in our cultures.
0: Yeah, I guess, yeah. like I mean, they're, they're, they were I mean, they're in a foreign land, and they're tired, Ooh, and they
1: so. don't know you know anything other than they knew that we were going to take care of them, yeah. and they had that peace that we were going to take care of the situation. They didn't need to ask questions, and that struck me really really early on in the process that they trusted us Mm -hmm. and they just when I asked for help with translating they stood up and they helped and everything went much better than I expected it to
3: yeah absolutely uh so for myself when I was in village Two, I was over the supply for the whole village so I was in charge of you know you know, handing out, you know, clothes, shoes, we joke, we'd call our uh, supply shop, we call it TJ Maxx and Target, because they would always come, you know, that's where they get all their clothes, all their shoes, toiletry, shampoo, you know, all the essentials that they need, and um, a big part of it that helped with it was, you know, you got to know every person that came through my line, you kind of got face-to-face interaction with pretty much everybody in the village working in supply, because that's where everyone goes to get what they need. And a huge part of that, I was over a group of like 20 young active duty airmen, and they were just rock stars running that floor. And I was pretty amazed at, you know, how like high performance they were, you know, running that show. And none of them, none of us worked supply. Mm-hmm. None of us has ever worked supply or logistics. So like I said, you know, we're kind of just figuring out how to go, you know, doing, you know, doing things on the spot. And a big help with that was like, you mentioned uh, Sergeant Glessing was the having some of the guests be translators for us. So we worked with the people in the villages, they actually worked with us to help translate as we, you know, help people get stuff what they need. And um, you actually see some of their pictures with, like, the chief master Surgeon of the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the translators that worked. In, I worked with in Village, too. So I thought that was, I was super proud of them. They had no idea. I was like, you realize you just met the chief <laughs> master Surgeon of the Air Force. Like, most of us probably won't meet her. Yeah. But you just had, you know, got to meet and greet with her. So it was really awesome just getting to interact with them every day and then like Sergeant Glessing said, the whole trust thing. I think most of my days I spent carrying babies and hanging out with the kids. Cause one of the ladies told me, she said, yeah, we feel so comfortable, you know, handing over our newborn to you because you guys are a sign of hope and freedom for us. So they were very honored for us to like hold their kids. So as the moms were shopping or something, I'd be like taking care of the kid. I'm like, yeah, don't worry about it. Get what you need.
0: (laughs) So so how is it run? You said your supply was, was it like a store? I mean, like you had like stock shelves full of stuff they could just walk up and take?
3: Yeah, And kind where of. does this stuff come from? Too? So like, all the clothes and like the toys and stuff, all donations, all yes. donations. So it's, it was really cool to see how the community and organizations pulled together. Every day we would uh, go to this uh, place called Rubicon. They would get all the donations mm-hmm. and they would, you know, divvy it out and organize it for us. And then we would go pick it up and then display it on the floor. Mm-hmm. And then every day they would know what times we were open. They would come, they would line up, and then they just go through the line and get what they need, like shirts, pants, shoes, and stuff like
1: that. And shoes were hard wow. to get. Shoes were hard to get. That item. always broke my heart, yeah.
3: Yeah. There, people would be like, oh, we've been here. This is our fifth time coming in here trying to get shoes. And we'd have to explain to them, like, hey, we're really trying. It's just mm. all a matter of donations right. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah.
2: So. You, you know, know, what's interesting about where Saul was working, um, we kind of stood – our group kind of stood that up the first day with Mm -hmm. the people in that village and we literally carried all the tables down the street to a bigger building that had been kind of closed for a bunch of years and reopened it up. And so there was, again, things would change by the hour, not so much by the day, but just rapidly changing. And um, so uh, Chief Master, uh, on this trip, uh, our State Command Chief, Chief Master Sergeant Marvin Boyd went on this trip and was uh, instrumental in helping set up Village Three, but toward the end, toward the middle of the trip, uh, Sal asked me to come over take some photos, and mm-hmm. so we went over and did some group photos and stuff. And I'm not kidding, at least two, maybe three of the NCOs who are active duty came over to comment how amazing of a of a leader she was, how they oh wanted to take her back to C- Seymour <laughs> C- C- Johnson. And, uh, a- Honestly,
3: I that I think I got put in a good situation where. The tech sergeant that was running before I got there, he did an awesome job of, um, it's funny because like I said, none of us ever did supply, but he ran uh, on a civilian side because he was a reservist. He ran a prison Mm. and he just took some of those skill sets on how to like keep things like in line, keep things, you know, from getting chaotic. Mm -hmm. He took some of that skill to apply to supply. So I owe a lot of having, you know, the leadership stuff that I was put up against to I was just in a good situation. But there was a lot you. of
2: that mentorship that went up and down the chain. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, I know that uh, one of the members from WADS, uh, Tech Sergeant Michelle Lai, she had a, she had captains and lieutenants working for her uh, because she, ran, she was early into that job. And as more people were added, they didn't take that job away from her because she was doing a great job. They're like... Yeah. This is your job. Make, you know, keep executing with the staff that you have here. And, mm-hmm. uh, and and for a lot of levels, that worked really well because we had to keep reminding ourselves this is a humanitarian mission. Right. And we're military members doing it. Yeah. Uh, now, sometimes that would get definitely played out the other direction. And you're <laughs> like, all right, yeah, I got to remember to, you know, my uh, co- courtesies and customs and, and all of those things, which you didn't really leave you, but. In uh, some of these stressful situations mm-hmm. where you're dealing with different languages and, oh, yeah, we're doing an evacuation during the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, yeah. it was pretty astronomical, unparalleled, you know, right. you get all yeah. those words.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Like you said with the tech sergeant line, like I think there it was really prevalent that, like, I told like some of the airmen, I said, do not sell yourself short based off your rank. Your ideas, we need them. Mm-hmm. We rely heavily on everybody's ideas, no matter what rank you are. If you want to take charge, we got your back, kind of thing. And a lot of the junior enlisted, they did an amazing job running some of the shows. So when people mm-hmm. would ask me, I would like ask Airman Snyder. He runs that show. I want him to take ownership of that. So, mm-hmm. wow, yeah,
0: that's awesome. Yeah. Um, medical, like you guys mentioned, uh, the uh, isolation oh, dorms. Yeah, yes. like tell me about like some of so that. about
1: aspect. about two weeks in, the the standby crew kind of. Uh, we we got kind of sort of reassigned, I guess, is a good way to put it, but um, the buses stopped coming. They put a pause on bringing new people in. They kind of capped it for a little bit, and so we were no longer bringing the buses in. The stand-up phase had kind of reached a, a point where we were ready for the number of people we had, and we needed to move into more of a sustaining phase where we could set up new services for people that were already there. And one of the things that had been recognized early on when they were doing medical screenings of the guests that were arriving was that they had infectious diseases. They had been exposed to COVID or measles or chickenpox or tuberculosis. Um, and they needed a place to keep them separate from everybody else to keep those things from spreading. So they set up an isolation dorm where they had the ability to separate those people from the other guests that were there and, and monitor their, their symptoms and monitor how long they were in isolation to make sure that they didn't spread anything to the rest of the, the villages. Mm. And so about two weeks when we were done with the running the buses and those random tasks of setting up cots and clearing buildings, they they said, Well where do you where do you want to work? And we have different tasks. And then they said, Wait, who's vaccinated? We need six mm-hmm. vaccinated people and I Well, I am they said thanks. <laughs> <I> went, oh, <laughs> just <laughs> oh, volunteered yeah, <laughs> I just yeah. So, um, in the isolation dorm, it was basically a village to itself because we had to provide all of the services of the villages within a single building. We had our own clothing and supply room, and we had food brought in every day for meals, and we had to deliver those to the rooms because some of the people couldn't leave their room, and we had our own yard that was fenced off separately from everybody else, so they could go outside and play, and shifts so that the measles-exposed patients weren't exposed to the COVID-exposed patients, and mm. so managing all of that logistically, I was amazed at what they had done in just two weeks before I even started working in that building.
0: So, did they have family like cut off that were in gen? I don't know, gen pop, general, they did general population, <laughs> like. Cut off and had family members in the isolation dorms for a certain amount of time?
1: So from my understanding was if somebody in the family tested positive for COVID, then they would take the entire entire family. family. So we had rooms inside the COVID dorm uh, in the floors that were where the COVID patients were at that had 12 and 13 people in them. Mm -hmm. And... um, we had one hallway that was specific to measles patients and one hallway specific to chicken pox patients that were physically separated on different sides mm-hmm. of the building. And, um, when I was there, there were, uh, there was a large family in the, in the hallway with the measles patients. And so there were 16 people and they, they had the entire hallway themselves. So, the, so they had four or five rooms to, to share and the kids could play in one room while the parents were resting in the other. And, Uh, But there, there were about the first couple weeks I was there, or the first week I was there, there were about 200 patients um, in the isolation upstairs for for COVID. And they weren't all positive COVID patients. They were exposed to Mm -hmm. the people that had been tested positive and public health would come in and do testing on a specific schedule. Uh, I think it was, I don't know for sure but i think maybe day three and day 10 or whatever their schedule was to make sure that those people were um able to leave the isolation at the appropriate time
0: Hmm. yeah uh sergeant master sergeant hudgel um sorry pause for a second (laughs) while my chair (laughs) settles um you're you're a public affairs guy so you're you're writing stories you take photos was that your job there or what it, what was your specific? No,
2: I, I volunteered to be boots on the ground which yeah. meant i was going to do whatever whatever okay. and uh, jen and i were both assigned to what they called the dock 11 which was we were expecting to have sometimes five thousand people arrive in a day that did not happen and mm-hmm. so we had an overflow area kind of like a what they call like a bus stop of a hangar that had maybe a couple hundred cots That we could keep people at for an hour or two before we process them in over at the Joint Readiness Center. We realized about two weeks in that they were gonna close that down, never really utilize it, but we would go over and report for the day. And then after a couple of hours, we would go find these jobs where, Mm -hmm. you know, Jen went over to uh, work in the COVID dorms, or some of us went over to Village Three while they were standing it up, building the tents to help them, you know, literally do just about anything which was unload buses getting people into their their areas that they were going to sleep moving their clothes and processing taking their bags with them as they went through vaccination or medical screening so there was a lot of moving pieces and you just had to be super simper gum you know the whole time Mm -hmm. and it was when we got there it was It was summer in New Jersey. It's hot and muggy. There Mm -hmm. are days it was 90 degrees and 90% humidity. So by 9 o'clock, you were, you were, yeah. that. Yeah. Thanks for the
1: reminder. I had almost gotten that out of my head.
2: (laughs) I know you are in mid-October, and it's kind of a lost memory. But, yeah, I, I just remember 930 going, I used to live in the Deep South, and this is a lot like that same kind of weather.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, and I always kept my top on. And I know some airmen, they would take theirs off because they'd be working. But I, I, still just kept mine on just in case. <laughs> yeah.
1: We got the tail end of the hurricane as it was oh. freezing oh, yes. out. So oh So we had yeah. the tropical storm weather come through one Oof. day.
2: Yeah. New York City flooded while we were there, and we caught the the very edge of all that weather system. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it still rained a lot, but we didn't get the flooding and the yeah. tornadoes. But I transitioned into doing more of the PA work when we had the pause. When you,
0: had a, when you, had to, mm-hmm. when you were able to fill your time with it. And, that's nice because that, some of the best imagery came out you yeah. know, from you. you know? It's like and seeing I, some of that stuff. The weird like,
2: thing is, is that they had a public affairs staff that's all active duty there, and they had sort of been pulled from the McGuire side and a few other places. But it was, again, so disorganized, and I was able to get on their release letter and start getting images, and I got a lot of stuff out early just because the left hand and the right hand, that whole operation right. was getting stood up, and then they got more people. It was not an easy process. Uh, mm-hmm. Release authority was terrible, uh, <laughs> and because it had to go through three and four levels okay. of of release, both at the task force level there, and uh, Army North and, and Northcom. Uh, and they were still writing the, the public affairs guidance as that's, we were there and changing an it and the Fragos were changing. And um, there were a couple of times I just thought, you know, I'm not even going to try and do this anymore because it's just I would get done with my normal 12-hour shift and go back to my room and work on imagery and stories and captions and stay up and maybe get three or four hours of sleep and rinse and repeat and do it again to, to get this stuff out. But there's just part of me who said, you know, there's so much storytelling that needs to be done here. Yeah. That kind of right. adrenaline—I don't know where that kind of came from—but it was like something I hadn't really experienced before. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of kept rolling on that because I would give them like 15 images to look at, and they would release three. Yeah.
3: yeah. Well, so... thank goodness you're taking pictures because right, right. pictures was a huge thing over there. Like we weren't allowed to take any pictures, of course, or they weren't, and they couldn't take pictures of us. So I'm glad that you're able to capture those moments because there's so many people that we had connections with, I was like, I wish we could get a group picture together, but we couldn't. So thankful for public affairs that you were able to capture some of those moments. Absolutely.
2: Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Some some people I got more pictures than others, but uh, it was just, again, familiarity. But we took 50-some people from Washington. We had a big group that went over. So Mm -hmm. that was like telling our story. The internal battle, though, is this whole idea of, I felt like I had to educate the active duty Army and public affairs on what the Air National Guard does, mm. because Ooh. we've been doing this whole COVID ops for over a year and a half, where yeah. we've been out in the community and we've been doing all these different jobs, and domestic op you know domestic ops for these kind of things is our bread and butter, right. and it's not in their lane, and so it was these conversations, both either on the phone or directly going to their office and going you know, it's important to our stakeholders and our people back and how we're going to get people to volunteer. We've got to show what our people are doing and talk about what they're doing. And they're, they give us a great head nod and like, yeah, just keep sending us your stuff. But you know, it would yeah. again go through these wickets of filters and it would be some days they would release everything I shot. Next day, they wouldn't release anything. And the same thing with news stories because. You know this too, Jason. When you get a great story, it's easy to write. It's easy to tell. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we do the same things over and over and over again, you're looking looking for new nuances. But these were amazing stories. And I literally could have written two or three a week if I would have just done straight public affairs. But I concentrated on our people and how they interacted with some of the other people there. Um, And I was literally writing my last news story on the airplane coming home uh, because I just – there's, you're just time crunched, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that was that was like the sub, that secondary thing I was trying to accomplish and, mm-hmm. and get photos over people. And mm-hmm. uh, again, kind of, I felt like I somehow got to get the active duty to understand how we work. And they never did put a guard person on their staff over there. And they weren't producing a lot of print content. Mm-hmm. So... That was that was an extra extra layer of um, frustration, but again, I think we all hit these le- levels of frustration in anything that we were doing over there, because it was again everything was un- unprecedented. Yeah. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I know within the Dock Eleven crew, we had what was it? Five different states represented from the Guard, oh. and um, so we ha- I know we had Washington, obviously. That was about half of the crew. And then we also had somebody from Niagara Falls, New York. We had people from Ohio, people from Pennsylvania, people from Oklahoma.
3: There's someone from Guam. There's a Guam was out there. Yep. Wow. Not yeah. Not on our
1: not on our team, but, right, but she was Guam there. We there. found her. Yes. And uh, so I remember I'm not sure exactly which state, but I know one of the people came up to you and said, Hey, people back home wanna know what we're doing. Can you can you try to get some pictures of me that get approved? And so you would. And I appreciate that so much that you would go specifically like follow them around for a little bit and make sure you got pictures that could be approved and I know on my last day specifically you came over and, and hung out with me for a little bit because I was hurting trying I try not to cry about leaving because I connected with people mm-hmm. that I I knew I was never going to see again and I knew that um, I couldn't take my personal photos of them and so that was really special to me, so thank you very much.
2: Oh, it was. She had a natural connection with these kids over there, and mm. a lot of that. I think that the, the second biggest mind blow to me was how many kids, right? You see these images on CNN, uh, Fox, uh, MSNBC with those air flights coming out
0: mm-hmm.
2: before we went over in the month of August, and you go, okay, I'm just seeing like humanity trying to get into the airport and get on mm-hmm. those airplanes, but then when we're meeting and greeting them as we're getting them these moms with and dads with four kids and the oldest is maybe 12 Mm -hmm. and that they have infants and they're getting on these buses and and i just would sit there and look look left and look right and be another family and it was such a young population that at least we were servicing there at at mcguire and I think that's where <clears throat> that trust with the kids is because yeah. we all wanted to play with the kids, right? That's, that's, <laughs> we did. That, that was yeah. easy. <laughs> and for the parents, that was great because they were exhausted, right? And the kids still had some energy. They're very resilient. <laughs> and so I just remember when we were trying to get them on these buses one day, these two little girls, they were sisters, they were probably five and three, and we're just literally playing with them for about 20 minutes while their parents are just trying to, you know, bunk some yeah. sleep before they get on the bus and. When they got on, they the they kind of smiled at us like kind of this like thanks for wearing them down a little bit <laughs> yes, and, and occupying yes. them. Yeah, I
3: don't know. Yeah. So just a quick little story to speak about the kids. So my supply shop, we adopted, we kind of adopted one of the kids because um, what, my senior master sergeant JP, he was walking in the village and he had um he had some toys he was giving out. A Whole bunch of kids just like. Ramsacked him like just jumped him like you know oh my gosh you yeah. know just you know crowding him and then this little boy he's from oregon he comes out of nowhere and he speaks english and he jumps in he goes hey stop doing that why are you acting like that leave him alone like you guys need to act right or else they're not gonna give us toys and so ever since then we kind of adopted him but um he's from oregon out of all places yeah. and his family was just there for a wedding and they got stuck and so he's just there with his grandma Waiting for her to go through the process. So, oh, wow. out of all the places, he was mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, I'm from Oregon," and he would kind of help us out. So,
2: and we dealt with a mm-hmm. we dealt with a lot of the heartbreak stories too. Um, they would come out of nowhere, and sometimes we would we would hear about them from some others, but other times they were direct. And I mean, one that still still stays with me uh, when I think about it. It's 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 still hard to get my head around, but this. A gentleman who had worked at the embassy, his English was fluent, just perfect, and super nice guy. He had a soccer ball. We were kind of like trying to take it away from each other, and he's probably about 30-something. And he said, hey, can you help me? My my mother-in-law, uh, my my mother, it wasn't his mother-in-law, but it was someone of his family. She has lost like one of these bags that's really important to her. And so I'll translate. And we went over, and she said, yeah, I, had, I came with two bags. And we were at Ramstein. I was washing some clothes. We had them up to dry and either got thrown away or stolen. She lost all those clothes. And she had one bag left Mm -hmm. that had some important documents in it. And that got misplaced at McGuire, like basically in this shuffle of bags and buses and things like that. And she started to get super emotional. And then he stopped me and he goes, you know, all this has been about loss for her. And it's not just the clothes, she's here with three of her daughter-in-laws and all three of her sons have been killed by the Taliban in the weeks leading up to getting here. Mm -hmm. And so here she was with her daughter-in-laws and her grandkids and she's lost her sons and, you know, like, I don't know what was in that bag, but I made it my mission for the next 45 minutes to try and get as much information as I could about them and their bag and what it looked like and where the extra lost bags were going to go and and coming back and talking to him and it was one of the one of those things that I'm like I'm going to do whatever I can to try and at least in this one situation mm-hmm. try and make it better for this family but um, that resiliency that she was even holding together I don't know how most of us would have been able to have done that I think it was sure well just holding it together but there were days that I would get out there and I would have these interactions and I would have to take like a 10-minute walk somewhere
1: oh, and just clear yeah. my head
2: because it would just be so much emotion yeah. coming at you. Yeah,
1: absolutely. there was there yeah. was a lot of stories that, that we'd hear um, sometimes directly from the people that could speak English and sometimes indirectly through the translators that they, they have been through a lot
0: getting here. Yeah, yeah. that's sad to hear. I mean, I
2: mean that's. We know that some of the families. Part of the reason that we had to take the photographs that I was allowed to release at a forty-five degree angle, and not show faces, was to protect family members because families mm-hmm. were split. Mm-hmm. I ran into a kid who was playing soccer he was asking for a soccer ball. But he had kind of an old, beat-up volleyball, and he was asking for a soccer ball. Mm-hmm. And we just in the conversation we had, he he said, "Yeah, I'm here with my dad." And I said, "You have brothers or sisters?" He goes, "Yeah, they're with my mom in Afghanistan still." Just mm-hmm. like so matter of fact. And it's just take the air out of you right there thinking yeah. they're separated and they may not see them ever again. Or if they do, it may be a long time. Right, yeah. But he just needed a soccer ball because, you know, And I'm like, gosh, we, we did. That was one of those things we didn't have enough of, right, toys? Just didn't have enough rubber balls or soccer balls or things that keep yeah. the kids going.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, what? Like in your reporting, I guess, in your time that you were writing and taking pictures, like what other, what other kinds of stories that stuck out to you? Like even, I know you, you sent back a, a, a story on uh, guardsmen who you know, pull from their cultural history or something. Mm-hmm. And um, what other, yeah, can you there talk was to some, the, of the, some of those there stories. There was
2: a, a, done? A, an amazing multicultural um, reaction to people who put their hands up to go on this exercise. And we had one of our members from our from the Washington Guard. Uh, Her parents had escaped from uh, Laos during the Vietnam War. And I ran into another woman from Alaska whose parents did the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was just out working and talking Mm -hmm. with people, Um, but it was over and over again. Including yourself, your 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 background saw uh, uh, people who who looked at who felt that they could make an immediate impact because they had that there was this, a level of empathy that you needed to have. Absolutely, you needed yeah. to, to know what it was like to be of someone uh, in a situation where y- you were the other. I don't know if that's, I mean, that's how I looked at it at least, that you were not like everybody else or you didn't have the same background. And uh, for me, uh, Afghanistan is an interesting bookend of my career because I enlisted in the Army in the entry Program in 1979 in October, a long time ago. (laughs) The Soviet invasion was just a few weeks after that into Afghanistan. And as our, our agent general was saying, you know, that we were kind of going over there to write the last story of American involvement in that. part of the
3: last chapter,
2: yeah. And so Mm -hmm. when I look back at the time I came in and time I'm leaving, you know, the bookends are Afghanistan.
0: Interesting. I know, yeah.
2: Yeah, so, uh, but there were a lot of people there who, uh, again, some of them were, my parents were welcomed to this country as refugees from Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, and this was their—they were the first generation to grow up here. This was their way of giving back to the United States, opening a door to them. I—I um, I don't know about the two of you. I heard some stories that people were very happy to be in the United States, very welcoming. Um, I think we all like heard these different stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so caught up again in just seeing for me as a photographer, just the visual, I was caught up in people's faces. I was caught up in the in the clothing and the colors and the expressions and, and just, you know, just the different, the different multicultural uh, elements working together of both us supporting them and, and then them coming to our country from another country.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that was um, trying to, you know, we would try to be definitely be respectful of their culture and their yeah. customs, but also trying to help them kind of adjust coming to the United States. Like for example, like in supply, we, uh, we used to have the lines separated with like men and women. And then we we're thinking about it. We're like, well, let's, let's see if we can get them into one line. Cause you know, once they leave the space, you know, they're not going to go to a store and yeah. be in a separate line. So we try to help, you know, help them adapt as well. And kind of, you know, say, Hey, this is, you know, kind of how, you know, what we do here in the United States and trying to ease like their anxiety and their stress of adjusting to our culture as well.
0: So, do you guys have a sense of what's next for these evacuees?
3: Like, At least, well, for some of the translators I worked with, some of them were like they were doctors. They, um, I met this one woman; she was a pilot. So, I feel like a lot of them that I, a lot of them that I came across, I was like, man, I'm excited to see what your future holds here in America mm-hmm. now that you have all these options and somewhere safe to be.
0: So, yeah. so here's where I'm, I'm trying not to be you know, glasses half empty kind of guy, you oh, know, okay. I, but I, I have a sense that like once all this is over mm-hmm. and they get a little bit of help, you know, they go out into the country and it's just going to eat them up and spit them out. I mean, like oh. they're coming from another country and they're just, it's going to, it's going to be super, super difficult for them to just, oh, to sure. you know, just yes. in, in, in the economy in general, you know getting that slice of the American pie thing, you know, it's just going to be so difficult. And I'm, I I gotta be honest. And I say, I, I hope I'm, I hope the best for him. I really do. But Mm -hmm. that's fair. Cause I don't,
3: cause I was thinking that too. Cause a lot of times like the kids will just be running around and then there's so many times where I'd be like, watching a kid, and I'd be, like, trying to figure out where their parents are. Because, yeah. right. you know, they're used to letting their kids just run out. And I was, like, thinking in my head, I was like, oh, like, you can't do that here. <laughs> <laughs> right. You can't just leave your kids running yeah. around. They'll, you know, that's legal here. But, no, you're yeah. you're absolutely right, right. Stuff that's it's, it's not it's probably legal here, not, right. not accepted over here, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I think that I was watching the future U.S. soccer team. Like, <laughs> yeah. they're going to yeah. – <laughs> Absolutely dominate <laughs> our sports when it comes to <laughs> soccer and volleyball and yeah. things like yeah. that. Those kids are amazing. I saw a little girl, she had to have been like five years old, and she was teaching an older girl that was about seven or eight how to play volleyball because it was just not something that she must have been familiar with in her village, but it was something this little or younger girl was Better than I am at it. And I don't play volleyball all that much. But, I mean, as an adult, I've played it a few times. And <laughs> she was just killing it. And uh, the two girls were from different villages, like I said. So I they didn't seem to communicate it with the same language. I think the older girl, it was her second language. And so there were some struggles with just watching the two communicate between each other she could show her things and she was teaching this older child how to play volleyball. And it was so awesome to watch. And just think about like how they've been allowed to go out and do those things. They've been Mm -hmm. allowed to go play soccer in the streets. They've been allowed to go to the park independently and play with their older brothers and sisters and the the other people in the village. And they're going to dominate our sports (laughs) system. And I think it's amazing because they are great athletes and they are very, very dedicated to, to athleticism and they're going to be really good at that mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll be able to bring that back to their schools and show all the other kids. So that'll be something they can connect with the American kids with.
2: Yeah. I kept this mantra in my head and I thought about that same question and I kept this mantra in my head and it went back to even when I started my own business years ago and that was give everything 10 years. And I know that sounds like it's a long mm-hmm. time, but in, in a lot of ways, 10 so years lot is not is a, a lot, yeah. long yeah, time. And a so yeah, So <laughs> the kids will assimilate much easier. And, yeah, true, uh, true. yeah. The, the The age I worry about are the, these boys who are 12, 13, 14, where they're going to be kind of stuck between two cultures. Uh, the parents will probably do a lot of things that they need to do to, to get by, but that's where I think – people like ourselves who are on these missions who mm-hmm. will probably want to do this as on volunteer status, you know, in the communities and things like that. I, I talked to, uh, I, when I was there, I, I kind of was with the same, uh, two other NCOs, chief Boyd uh, was one and, and, uh, mass sergeant, uh, Andy Ramon, uh, Remus. Remus
3: yep.
2: And the three of us were like saying the same hotel and writing back and forth. And we talked about some of these things all the time. And I think what the biggest takeaway was is that, uh, you know, there, there, we are going to see uh, the fruits of our labor in this next generation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so what we can do now is get them here. And again, it's these hierarchy of needs. You talk about this mm-hmm. this hierarchy of needs, and literally, we would we watched people go from that lowest level when they got here, mm-hmm. exhausted, tired, hungry, beat up. And within a week or two, they had gone up like two and three levels on that to where they were starting to make friendships in those uh, in the villages, just because of that close proximity and mm-hmm. and they had like gotten here and gotten fed and started to make some of these kinships and gotten some medical attention and had probably for the first time, you know, and the kids had enough to eat, and they had. They had freedom to run around and play and not be, you know, afraid to, you know, something was going to happen. So there was those positive things that they weren't even experiencing in their own country prior to us. Um, the, one of the last days before we left, the, uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, uh, retired General Austin, was at the JRC speaking on a yeah. tour and I happened to go in to sign in because it was like the last day or two that we were there and I signed in. I thought, Well, I'll just hang out for a minute and hear what the sec dev has to say. And within a couple of minutes after his briefing, he spoke to about 40, 50 of us that were in the room and the very first thing out of his mouth and it really impressed me was, I can't I cannot thank you service members enough because they, the first faces that they are seeing are yours, our service members' faces. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. the face and, of hope
3: for them. Mm-hmm. And that
2: sense of hope, and that that what you're doing for them is is a positive first example.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that made me extremely happy that, that he, he got it, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. One of the photos you took ended up on Facebook, and it's me playing patty cake basically with one of the oh. girls in in the isolation dorm. And she was just the light of my life. I loved seeing her every day. She'd just light up. And uh, so when I looked uh, at the comment section, the very first comment was about how wonderful it was that this girl went from Afghanistan to America and her first interaction is with a female service member and how impactful that would be on her life and it hit me so hard I was I think I almost started crying in the moment just reading it because his words were so sweet and how just simply playing patty cake with this little girl and her memory of this woman can grow up to become a service member she can grow up to become a role model for others and she gets to see that when she's here in America and that's her first experience is being surrounded by female service members that are uh, women in, in roles of power and women in roles of leadership yeah, sure. and mm-hmm. being able to aspire to something that she may not have had back home. Mm-hmm. Or, That's uh, nice to hear. Mm-hmm. Like so it was just, it was really heartwarming to see somebody else recognizing that. And I, I actually pulled it out and sent him a message privately and said, thank you so much for your kind words because that was really sweet and I had a little conversation with him and uh, it just, it really hit me that you know yeah that perspective just, right yeah i was just playing patty cake with her <laughs> and, right right um and she'll always remember that she yeah. i hope she does i really hope that she does maybe but, years
3: down the road like where oh, are they now with that picture oh yeah. i would love it if she
1: had <laughs> found be that so picture cool. <laughs> yes. be so cool if she Find sees that yes right? um play patty amazing. cake again yes. 10 years yeah. from now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she she had been so so incredibly shy her first day in the isolation dorm when i first met her that the interpreter was trying to speak to her and she wouldn't respond to him at all. And so then somebody else explained she's from a village and she didn't speak uh, Pashto or or, uh, Farsi or any of the common languages that the interpreter knew. And so we were trying to work with her and, and kind of make sure that she found other kids her age to play with because she didn't seem to have that same level of understanding that they had and after about a week it turned out that pashtu was her second language and she did know what they were saying she was just really hesitant to use it and she it took her about a week to open up to the interpreter and start speaking to him Mm -hmm. uh and so when when he finally got to talk to her was when he was telling her that i was leaving and going home to my family and she went upstairs and got her dad and mm. brought her dad downstairs. And he said, I'm her father. And she says, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> and I thought, you know, there are some things that are just universal in this world. And one of those things is a little girl believes her daddy can fix her problems.
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. And a power of connection, yeah.
1: So it just hit me so hard. Like, that, across all of our cultural differences, there are some things that are just You I can't universal. imagine how many times yeah. you
0: guys have experienced, you know, just that emotional connection so many times in the, in the month that you were there. I'm, I'm pretty sure you guys will, you have a yeah. lot of stories to tell.
3: Absolutely. And I think the biggest thing was, <clears throat> you know, they made you like, you know, we were there to help them, but in a way for me, at least, I know you guys probably say they helped us as well. Like, absolutely. Like they were, we were changing their lives while they were changing our lives as well. 110. hundred Absolutely. What do,
0: you, what, what, absolutely. What, what do you guys take away from it all? Like what, how, how did it change you or help change you?
3: I'd say for me, I just put things in perspective as far as, you know, even on my hardest days, I have a lot to be thankful for and how resilient human beings and then human beings are, but then also the power of community, how it's really important to look out for one another because it does, we were in villages and it does take a village Mm -hmm. to, you know, get out of, you know, something that they were going through and. You know, and just put that into perspective that even on my hardest days, I still have a lot to be thankful for. And you saw it in them as well. They would be so excited when I'd hand them this used t-shirt, but <laughs> they loved it. And they thought, you know, it was the, like, you know, the best thing ever. So it's just, you know, putting the little things in perspective, like even on the hardest days, we have a lot to be thankful for. Yeah.
1: There's a lot we take for granted here in America that mm-hmm. I hadn't even realized until I saw people just overjoyed to see things just, you know, like a Mm -hmm. snack or they'd come downstairs and ask for fruit or an apple and, uh, just, just having those things available to us all the time. And we, we take for granted the fact that we can just walk down to the store by ourselves and get things. And, uh, to them that, that may not be safe or that's not something they're accustomed to doing. And so just having, the, the ability to do some of the things that we do day to day, and having that, I have a newfound appreciation for the freedom that I have here.
2: You know, uh, one of the stories I did tell, and it was through Chief Boyd that I got this um, connection. Again, there's like networking and mm-hmm. people you meet, and th- those things are lost. They're going to stay with me a long time. But uh, he was a reservist. His name is uh, Senior Master Sergeant uh, Emmett McDowell and he's a retired New Jersey state police officer and he's in real estate now. And he was venting to some of his coworkers like, Hey, what do you need? How can we help you? Right. Civilian. He's like, you know, it may sound trivial, but we need strollers for these moms, right? (laughs) Strollers Strollers, and, you know, like, and, and blankets. And so, Within a few days through his network of people in the real estate community and people who were retired cops, they collected hundreds and hundreds of new and used strollers. And they coordinated it all together with the New Jersey state police that were still active and members of the New Mm -hmm. Jersey state police who were part, who were, uh, part of the, of the uh, Muslim uh, organization and which is one of the largest ones in the country. And they were all coming together, cops of different backgrounds and, uh, people in the community and that first one went so well where they brought in you know a couple hundred that within a few weeks word of mouth a couple like maybe 10 days they had another gigantic shipment and it was like those things where we're tapping into each other on different levels. You know, like, you know, like.
3: Now I look at Stroller's totally different now. Yeah, like I know
2: a, like I know a guy who, who knows a guy who can make this happen, right? And we were kind of doing that within our own network in these villages where you, you were talking about someone yeah. who had worked in a prison or someone who had a background in, uh, you know, organizing things in a different way. We use those as oh, yeah. guardsmen. We use those civilian skill sets.
3: Yeah, that's like our superpower, right? As mm-hmm. guardsmen, people always think like, oh, well, you're only there once a month, not understanding that they still have to be just as ready as an active duty person. Yeah. And then yeah. they bring this whole other skill set to the farm from their civilian side. But uh, speaking of the strollers, a quick story is, so strollers was a hot item. Um, so we'd have to kind of police them and like how we gave them out, making sure, you know, people with medical needs, new infants, they were the first come first serve. And there's this little girl who'd come see me every single day looking for a stroller for her baby brother, but I've never seen this baby brother before. Uh-huh. <laughs> so in my head, I'm like, but where's this little boy? And I don't network know. Network of strollers. Yeah. Because I was like, where? And her name was, um, her name is, so I apologize if I, if I say this incorrectly. It's like W-A-F-A, I think it's Wafa, which I think means uh, someone that keeps their word. So that was her name. Mm -hmm. And um, one of these days she came by and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to give it to her. I mean, there was a chance, there is a chance that she could be tricking me and she not really, you know, using it as a toy or for food. So I gave her the stroller and then um, when I was coming off of shift, I was leaving and then I turn around and then I see her just like waving and she's pushing her little, little baby brother in the stroller by herself around and I was like, okay, there we go. That's it. That's it. She
1: couldn't show you her brother because she didn't have a way of bringing him. Right, but you. I was thinking, like, show me
3: your little brother just yeah. to be, you know, because we have this long list. But yeah, sometimes you got to go with your intuition. Yeah. So.
2: And it's, it's, I think those are the things that are going to stay with me the most uh, is that I realize we have so much stuff in this country <laughs> mm-hmm. that, you know, you don't need nearly as much stuff yeah. just to survive. Right,
0: right. All these Quality, storage yeah. places popping oh, yeah. up left and right. Yeah. You know yes. what I mean? Like we have so much stuff that we have to put it somewhere else. Right. Are we wasting? You know? yeah. yeah.
2: But I, I think I went home and I looked at my daughter in a different way. It's just slightly in terms of, uh, you know, not that I didn't love her before or care for her before, but there was like another thread there. Yeah. Um, and and, I, and I, I'm still stuck there. There's still part yeah. of me and we've been back two weeks. There's still part of me that's still back there. Uh, that, right. that, that misses it, that mm-hmm. while How I was there, yeah. you're just yes. you're living life at its most raw, basic part, which is compassion toward another person mm-hmm. yeah, on a minute-by-minute basis. Okay, I'm not with, the only with, one thinking about Village 2. I know. I <laughs> <Okay. So. laughs> was the only one. And, so. with, and with each other's airmen, too. Yeah,
1: right. yeah. How are
3: they doing? Yeah.
1: yeah. I connected with the NCOIC of the isolation dorms, and I got her phone number when I was working over there. And that girl that I had connected with, I knew which date she was going to be checking out because there had been other kids that that I had connected with earlier. And one of them that I felt close with had checked out of the isolation dorm on my day off. And I came back the next day and she wasn't there. And I was so heartbroken that I didn't get to say goodbye to her. And I wasn't going to let that happen again. So the next time I had a kid that I really wanted to keep mm-hmm. up with, I found out what date she was checking out. So that way I didn't take the day off. And it turns out that she was checking out the day before my birthday in October. So when I came back, I knew a week later she was checking out and I sent the mm-hmm. NCOIC a message and I said, here's here's her name. And you know she's checking out today. Can you make sure that, that she's taken care of? And um, my last day in New Jersey, I had purchased a whole lot of of special treats for the kids and one of those things was a 60 pack of play-doh and they weren't going to be giving it out at the isolation doors because they didn't want it stuck all over everything or <laughs> they didn't want the kids fighting over these these play-doh things but they were like well that'll be our going away gift when the kids check out of here they'll get a, a, a little tub of play-doh to take with them that's a good idea so that way they yeah. it doesn't get because uh, they didn't have anywhere to really play with it where it wouldn't get dirty or squish with somebody else's color or whatever. They wanted it to be good for them to have. So they, mm-hmm. that was their going away present. They're like, okay, we'll make sure she gets her favorite color and <laughs> that she can have, have Play-Doh on her way out. And so they, made, they checked in on her for me. So I hope she's enjoying it.
0: <laughs> well, we're coming up on the hour mark of our conversation already yeah Yeah. Yeah. we could go for hours yeah Yeah.
3: (laughs) stay tuned for part two time is so different to me now like you were saying
1: two weeks and then you were like wait it was probably only about 10 days i know and so the time there just you blinked and then we were on our way out and i was like wait no there's still
3: so much more left to be done yeah
1: i that's exactly it there's still so much more left to be done and i feel like my my work there wasn't finished yet so. i
3: will say hats off to the people that we went with originally because no one will know what it was like at the that beginning day one yes phase. so whoever comes up after us you're welcome no i'm just yes. kidding <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah. yeah so
2: it was uh i think again that this whole warp of time we had these conversations thinking, God, I feel like we've been here three months. Well, we've done about three months worth of work in this amount of time because we're working 14, 12-hour days. Please, yeah. uh, and it's like it's every day was kind of like Groundhog Day, rinse and repeat, you know, <laughs> but the, all these variations. Um, I think the biggest thing, too, is that, you know, we talked about how we grew from each other as as service members. And me, as I'm getting ready to retire and being an older older member and working with these two younger members, I feel so good about the health of our force and where it's going because, uh, and even some of our young active duty people that w- that came in there, uh, who are in their you know early twenties, I feel really good about where the country is going, and I think we've got some of the best people, you know, and that there are going to no, be future yes. leaders.
0: Yeah. So um, was this was this an all Air Force service members? Pretty,
2: pretty much at McGuire, it was. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, and I wonder if there's a reason why they selected the Air Force. That's a good <laughs> question. I was asking well, that there question was a lot of Navy
2: medical G- there yeah, too. Oh, okay, yeah. Joint okay.
3: task force, but we.
2: There's more Army at some of the other locations, and I I don't know how that happened where we were that more air wound up there. I
1: kind of, there's, I think, eight locations nationwide, and Fort Bliss and Mm -hmm. uh, McGuire-Dix were the two largest locations. So my,
0: Mm. without
1: confirming it exactly, but I think that the Army people were probably sent to Fort Dix, or Fort Bliss, sorry, and then the the Air Force was sent Mm -hmm. to McGuire, and that to me, I think it streamlined things because we didn't necessarily have half army, half air, and all of those different cultures coming right. together. That's true, we had yeah. reserve culture. We had guard culture. We had active duty culture. Mm-hmm. We had all the different states there that were represented. It was already a big mix of diverse <laughs> Americans. Yes. <laughs> Even with that on top of <laughs> it. And so by not having half of our leadership being army, it actually made it... So that we could streamline it, and I'm sure yeah. it's the same at Fort Bliss, where if they're all if they're all primarily Army services, then they can do things their way and right, and right. not have to yeah. worry about the additional level of of joint leadership.
0: <laughs> each each service has their own language that they use, yes, so sure. it'd be kind of hard to.
3: Yeah, I'm like, yeah. no, sorry, no for the army. Like We're not forming up for roll call. I just, are you here? Okay. <laughs> yeah. If you're not, text me. I don't know. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Is there they're, any, they're great in their own way. Anything mm-hmm. that, uh, any last stories that you want to tell? Any, anything oh. that sticks out? So many. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything, yeah, do you guys bring some notes and stuff that you wanted to
2: for me, just, the, again, the development of, like, our NCOs was really great and um, some of the highs and lows that went on there. Were, we stress tested, you know, people yeah. in, a, in an environment that probably yeah. never <laughs> been tested before. Uh, but um, I, I really think for me, trying to do some of the public affairs work on the side, uh, it was just so critical to talk about the the things that were actually happening there and and those networks and those associations that were coming together um they were they were powerful fun easy incredible stories and vignettes of how people got there mm-hmm. and um that I'll, that's definitely something I'll take away from it but I still think it's going to take me more time to process it all and uh, especially as I, I go out the door in retirement, I'll, I'll be thinking, like, this is one of the last things that I did. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and What a way to go. I know. Right. That's what
3: I was saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for me, it's just, you know, I think there was a lot of talks about this mission, people that agreed, maybe people that disagreed, you know, with what we're doing. But I think at the bare minimum, it's just how it's human beings on a human level. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. know, we all need connection. We all need community to rally behind us when yeah. we're in hard times. Mm-hmm. Help lift yeah. us up. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that really stuck out was, you know, when we had this um, one night when we were giving out, uh, the organization was giving out kebabs, Afghan food one night, and, you know, it was kind of getting crazy and hectic, and one of the profound moments was seeing, you know, my airmen rush up to help. Like, it doesn't matter, you know. At the end of the day, we all need that basic human connection and community to survive, so. Definitely
1: there are some some basic needs that are, just human needs and right doesn't matter your culture your background exactly. you, just, mm-hmm. you see something and you step in and you help and there's that understanding that unwritten unspoken understanding the, the times when I'd see a mom struggling with something and I'd just walk up and I'd just put my hands out to her and like how can I help you and even if she didn't speak English she understood I was there to help right. mm-hmm. and just having the that nonverbal communication with people that you just connect on a completely different level that, that is just human.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Compassion was a common language. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. That's a good
0: way to
3: put it. First world problems. I used to tell my <laughs> airman, I'm like, listen, I don't want to hear about your first world problems right now. <laughs> they should be having your per diem. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Perspective for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I think we can end it there. If there's, that's good for you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, well thank you I commend you guys for volunteering on this important mission and you guys and, and, and for bringing back your story and, and, and chatting with me about it because um, it's very important you know that's <laughs> I wish I would have been able to go but <clears throat> um, thank you again for coming in. Thank you, awesome. for Thank, us. Thank you for having, you having us and
1: for making this history, right? Like we're documenting right. history right here. Yes. Oh, yes. Awesome. That's These... the other
0: part of our job that we, Oh yeah, not just, huge. not just yeah. storytelling, not just taking pictures and writing, but to keep it safe and document it for yeah. years and years.
3: Yeah. I always like that quote, like storytelling, it's important to tell your story because it could be part of someone else's survival guide. So I hope someone hears this and adds it to their survival guide.
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. Great yeah. way to summarize that.
3: All right.
0: and we're out no I'm just kidding <laughs> thank you so much yeah not a problem thank you